upon a time, I was a high school athlete with absolutely no cooking abilities. And to this day, I have no cooking abilities. I, I'm just putting that out, my wife will attest to that, that I don't have any cooking abilities. Um, so in high school, you know, my knowledge of, of cooking food was taking taquitos out of the freezer and putting them in the microwave. I mean, that's just, that's just what we knew, and hot pockets and, and whatever else my mom could stuff in the fridge. And, and so during times of the year, during, uh, you know, spring, uh, my mom, you know, would work a lot later in the days, and so, you know, typically if we whined enough, we could get her to, you know, make us a snack or something like that, but that was just the symptom of being mama's boys. Uh, and so if we whined enough, we could get her to make a snack, but sometimes she wouldn't come home till, you know, 5, 6 o'clock because she'd be at the grocery store. She'd be picking stuff up and trying to, you know, stock the fridge. Well, on occasion, we would just, tip, we would just run out of food. That, that was the, the, we would just run out of microwavable food, so when we came home, we wouldn't have anything. Well, on, a, on most times, my mom would keep a couple of boxes of, of, of macaroni and cheese in, in the top cupboard, and we knew exactly where they were, and we could go make them. And I thought to myself, you know, as I came home from school that day, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to try my hand at making mac and cheese. I said, I've seen my mom do it. My 12-year-old brother can make mac and cheese. Why couldn't I make mac and cheese? So I started on, on my endeavor to to follow the directions by looking at the pictures because at this time, you know, I really didn't think, of, well, it's important to read what's on the box and just look at the pictures and imitate the pictures that are on the box. And so I start proceeding through this, this routine or this, this, you know, these picture phases. And I, I got the pot out and I, I put the water on and I boiled the water till, till it was, you know, till it was boiling and I pour, you know, the typical things you do with mac and cheese. Everybody knows how to make mac and cheese except for me. Okay, I, I have to look at the picture on the box to figure out how to do this. This shows you my capability of, of my, you know, my cooking skills. And, and so I'm getting through this, and, and they, they have a, you know, you see, you look at the picture, they have a, a strainer out there. So I got the strainer out, and I I'm put the noodles in the strainer, and I think, man, this is going great. What could go wrong? Well, if you look at that picture, you, you'll see the, the, the milk right there. You see the, the milk and then the cheese packet. But there's a little yellow, the little, little yellow dot that sometimes if you're not looking right, you overlook. Okay, so here's what I do. I pulled the, I got the pot out, the water's all drained. I put the cheese in. I put the milk in first. I mix it up. Oh, that looks good. I put the cheese in. Oh, that, that doesn't look, it doesn't look right. It doesn't look like the way my mom makes it. It doesn't look like the way, you know, I've, I've seen my brother make it. So, so what am I missing? I thought, you know what? I'm not missing anything. I'm just psyching myself out. I just got to wait till the cheese melts, and then it'll look like that, you know, that delicious photo of mac and cheese that I that I'd seen in TV shows and pictures and stuff that my mom made. And so I stirred up. I'm waiting for the cheese to melt, and there's these chunky little like chalk parts in the thing. And I think, you know what? Maybe it's just normal. This is what's going through my mind at the, at the time. Maybe it's just normal for it to look like this. So I take my first bite, and, you know, long story short, I had completely messed this up. I, I left out the butter. I, I missed an ingredient. I missed something that was essential. What was on the box? I mean, it was crucial. But that's the thing about imitation. Imitation is about reflection, not recreation. Imitation is about reflecting an image, replicating, not recreating. See, and sometimes, sometimes I think we think the imitation is the same thing as recreation. Well, we've got to recreate the original, right? We've got to make the original so it looks right. 
But you see, we do this all the time. We, we never, nothing we ever make or cook or, or do, we, we try to imitate. We don't, we don't try to make an original. We're not trying to make something that's original. We're trying to imitate something that's great. We do it in, in, in following directions and building, you know, for me, lately, it's been a crib. Um, for you, it might be something else. But we follow directions. We follow instructions. We follow things in order to make a replication, a reflection of the original image, not a recreation of the original image. We do it with our cookie. When we pull up, you know, our, our you know, iPad recipes, and I don't know if you do this, but sometimes I do this. I pull up an iPad recipe and I have to follow it to a T. But we do it all the time. We're trying to find something to replicate, right? To make a reflection of. Because it's not about making an original. It's about making a lookalike. It's about making something that looks like something else. Not creating an original. Well, I have to make everything purpose. Some of us, you know, we're, we're like this, right? We, everything's got to be perfect. We've got to create this perfect image. Well, essentially what Paul is doing in the book of Ephesians, if you have your Bibles tonight, go to Ephesians chapter 5. Turn over there with me and just look at, at Ephesians 5. And, and I, I want to back up to chapter 4 because I think this is where this idea really hits home. That imitation is about reflection, not recreation. It's about making a lookalike, not an original. And that's the simplicity of the idea. So Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, he starts out with this phrase. He's been talking about the doctrinal things in chapter 1 and verses, uh, or in chapter chapter 1 through 3, the, the doctrine of being in Christ, and then in chapter 4 is really his, his practical application of the whole message of the book of Ephesians. He starts, he says, therefore, right? He starts off with this phrase, and he does it in chapter 5 too. Therefore, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So the structure is that now that you know this doctrine of being in Christ, now that you, you're in Christ, you have to know something here. You have to know that you have to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That means not living as the Gentiles live, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. And the structure he shows, coming from chapter, chapter 4, verses uh, 4 through 6, where he talks about unity and being one, and, and how we're all unified under this one thing, this one God, the seven ones we call him. And then he goes into spiritual gifts in chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. He talks about what the purpose of spiritual gifts are for. Well, they're for building up the body of Christ to, to make the church mature. That's what the whole idea is. And then, and then in verse 17, the one I just mentioned, he says, you're not supposed to walk as the Gentiles walk, right? Because you're recreated. And then the end of the spiel of how we were transformed. You took off the old self. Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 25. You took off the old self and you put on the new self in Christ Jesus. You did this already. And I reminded you of that in chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. I reminded you that you have already changed, that you already formerly lived as the Gentiles have lived. Let me remind you again because what I'm going to go into next is so important. He says, now that you're in Christ and that you recognize this idea, he says, I'm, I urge you not to do what they did. And he talks about all these different, these different sins, these different wrong things that, that the Gentiles have done. And he says, look, this is not what you're supposed to do. And he ends the chapter with telling them that they're to be kind to one another, tender-hearted towards one another. And then we get into chapter 5. And he gives us three ways that we can live that are, that are pleasing to God. We're only going to talk about one tonight. We're going to talk about walking in love. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. 
But, but I want to show you the structure of this passage because it's incredible. Paul, after he talks about walking in love, urges them to walk as children of light. Take a look. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 8, he says, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You see what he's doing here and what he's going to go into in chapter 5, verses 22 uh, through about chapter 6 and verse 9 is he's going to help us understand the relationship of the church between, between Jesus and, and, and the church itself, the body. And he's going to help us understand the relationship between, between God the Father and, and, and children and that relationship. And he's designing this whole book around this idea that we do things to please God. We walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We walk as wise men. We walk in love. I just take a, take a stare at this image for a minute because this points to my whole idea that I, that I talked about at the beginning of this. Imitation is not about recreation. It's about reflection. It's about reflection, not recreation. Because when you look at this image, and if you take a good stare down at this, you'll notice that the, that the image proceeding from that tree is not perfect. And as Christians, this is what we're supposed to do. We, we can't beat ourselves up and say, well, we have to be these perfect people, right? We have to live as ever as, ever as, as so straight-lined as God would have us to be. We've got to do our best. But there's no perfection in reflection. There's, there's flaws in reflection. We're humans. We're flawed. We're people who, who aren't perfect. So let's jump in. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. And he starts the, the phrases this way. And this is what's, what's neat. And what I want to point out to you is, he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. What he's pointing out to them is simply this. You're to be imitators of God. Not just for the sake of imitating God, but because you're children of God. You're special. You're beloved children. Right? That's a special word. Anytime he uses that word, it's to, to broadcast this idea that you are special to God. And God expects you to be special. And he just finished a whole entire chapter talking about why you are special and why you're different from the rest of the world and why it matters. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So then he's going to illustrate it this way. Let, let me tell you, if you don't understand what it means to be an imitator of God as beloved children, let me show you what Jesus did. And this is how he illustrates it. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you as an offering and a sacrifice and as a fragrant aroma to God. You see, essentially what he's saying is, do you want to be an imitator of God? And you've got to walk in love. And that word love is a word that's very familiar to, to a lot of us. And it's this word agapao, or agape love. And it's this type of love that, that is concerned with others. It's a self-sacrificing love. It's not a love like, I love pizza, or, or um, I love going on road trips. It's the type of love that is concerned not about itself. It's the same type of love that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's not concerned with its needs. It's concerned with the needs of others. So you Christians, here's my ploy to you. Walk in love. But not the type of love that is just mere love. Walk in love that is concerned with the needs of others, just as Christ also loved you. You see what he's doing here? He's doing something so incredible. He's doing something so exciting. He's saying, look, compare the type of love that you have within the church. And, and the whole purpose of this is that he's trying to help them understand what the church is to be. Ephesians chapter 4, 4 through 6, 
is, is about understanding the, what the church is supposed to be. This is just one of the many pieces of the puzzle that fits in. To be a complete church in Christ. What is the body supposed to be? It's supposed to be a people who walk in love. It's supposed to be, be a people who radiate light. Who show that reflection. Because if you don't have any light, there is no way for you to reflect anything. If you don't have Jesus, there is no way for you to reflect Jesus. If you're not light, you will not reflect light. But here's what he tells them. Walk in love. Just as Christ gave himself for, up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God. He says he was the only one to do this. The only one who lived such a perfect, sinless life that he could offer himself as an offering and a sacrifice. And this terminology comes from the Old Testament. It comes from, from this, this idea of what the Israelite people used in order to gain atonement for their sins. An offering and a sacrifice. This resonates with people who are of Jewish descent. This resonates with people who are living in the city of Ephesus who are worshiping idol gods. People did this. People understood this terminology. People understood what it meant as a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma. It means it was a smell that was pleasing to God when Jesus died on the cross. And so walk in love. When you walk in love, when you love others as Christ has loved you, when you love the church as Christ has loved you, when you radiate the self-sacrificial love, it's a pleasing aroma to God. And it's the point of the message. He says, walk in love just as Christ also gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But look at the next verse is what he says. And he kind of transitions into here. He says, you want to know what love is? Look at Jesus. That's how you know what true love is. But you want to know what love is not? In order to understand what true love is, what agape love is, what self-sacrificing love is, you have to understand what it is not. And see, that's what I think we often get mixed up. We have to understand what it means to be self-sacrificing. It means putting the needs of others before yourself. And I know because we live in such a, such a selfish, self-centered society that it's hard for us to be selfless. We live in a society that pleases us. We live in a society that does what we want. And so our concern for others may not always be there because we let society creep within the church. But look at this verse. He says, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. You see what Paul is telling here? He's saying, look, don't talk about these things. Don't talk about immorality. Don't talk about impurity. Don't talk about greed or covetousness. And he's going to use the same phrase twice in this one little section in 3, three through 5. And he's going to talk about this same idea. Look, people who do this do not inherit the kingdom of God. People who do this are not reflecting the image of God. They're distorting it. They live in darkness. And as you watch people live this way, you will understand what I mean. And that's why he encourages them in chapter 5 and verse 8 to walk as children of light because you've got to understand what's going on here. Is that these people who live in who, who live in impurity and immorality and greed must not even be named among you as his proper In other words, he's, he's going to give them an alternative here. Look what he says. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. You see what he says there? He says, Let me give you an alternative to your problem. 
let me give you an alternative to talking about the things of the world. Because, you know, when we talk about the things of the world, when we, when, we, when, we, when we lift things in the world on a pedestal, they become our life. They become what's glorious to us. They become what's important to us when we set them on a pedestal. And so Paul's encouraging the church here. This is not what love looks like. What love looks like is what Jesus did. And you abstain from these things. And it goes back to chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. That once you're in Christ, that now that you've taken off this, this, this old self and put on the new self, you're, you're, you're in Christ and you need to remove these things. You need, to set, you need to take these things away. Let me give you an alternative, though. Instead of talking about the things of the world and placing worldly things on a pedestal, sin on a pedestal, give thanks. Because there's always something to be thankful for. There's always something in, in our lives and in everything we do, there's always something to be thankful for. Right? We, we often do, do this thing where, where, we, where we focus on the negative. We pull the negative out of a situation and we focus on that. And we, and we put hypertension on it. We say, well, this is the negative things instead of saying, well, what are the positive things? What do I have to be thankful for? When was the last time you counted your blessings? When was the last time you counted the things that God has already given you? You know what? You may not be rich in fame and, for, and fortune, but you have a good life. God has blessed you. I don't care who, who you are, if you've given your life to Him, God has blessed you for doing so, for being a Christian, for living the right way, for living as God would have you to live. But he says, don't do these things. These things aren't fitting. These things aren't proper to talk about among the church. But give thanks. Look at verse 5. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. You see what he's doing here? You know this for a fact. That's, that's the word that's, that's underneath this for you know with certainty. It's this idea of factual knowledge. You know what this is for the matter of fact. You know this. As a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus, you know that people who do immoral things, the people who do impure things, the people that are greedy, they don't inherit the kingdom of God because they're not after the one thing they need to be. And that's love. They're not after living a life that permeates a self-sacrificing life. The whole purpose, the whole point of this message is you've got to know what it doesn't look like in order to understand what it is that's important. We want to inherit the kingdom of God, do we not? We want to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We want our sights to be focused on the kingdom. So what are we doing to get there? What are we doing to look forward to that? What are we doing to understand this? How are we ridding sin in our life? How are we getting rid of the things that make us immoral, impure people? How, what are we doing? What kind of life are we living for God? It's not just about us. It's not just about living a good life to have a good life. It's about living a, a life for God and understanding that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And so therefore, imitate. Because imitation is not about recreation. It's about reflection. It's about reflecting the image of God. And that's all Paul's trying to do here. He says, this is a little piece of the puzzle. A little piece. A small piece of the pie that you have to understand. He says, you need to not do this. You want to inherit the kingdom of God? 
These are things you can't do. This is not what the picture of love looks like. This is not what we see Jesus doing when he sacrifices himself on the cross. This is not being self-centered. Am I wrong? We don't see Jesus that way. But look, look what he says. He says, now that you know what love looks like, and now that you, you know what love doesn't look like, you know, when you're in the world, when you're among people, you've got to not let people paint the picture for you. And that's what he does in chapter 5 and verse 6. He says, you, there are people in this world, and, and you know this. You, you know this because you are around people like this, and you deal with people like this in your daily life, at your jobs, at your schools, at, at, at whatever places you come and go. You deal with people like this. You deal with people who try to convince you that God does not exist. You deal with people who try to convince you Otherwise of God, he says, don't let anybody deceive you. This time they're dealing with a heavy group of, of religious people. They're dealing with people who are, who are worshiping idols. They're dealing with people uh, who, who are you know, soon to become called the, the, the Gnostic group of people who don't believe in Jesus. The people who say that, that, that like, in, like in Colossians, you see, they, they avert to aestheticism to say that that is the love of God. He says, look, let no one deceive you with empty words. This is the same phrase that, that Cliff talked about this morning. It's vain. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't let people deceive you with vain words because they don't mean anything. They're trying to, to take you off course. You know, for, for this reason, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Because of immorality, because of impurity, because of greed, because of covetousness, because of sin in the world, that's why the wrath of God comes upon the world. Because there's sin in the world. Because there's evil. Because there's things that aren't right. Because there's things that, that, that maybe even some of us as Christians are involved in. And maybe, maybe, we're not doing our part to reflect the light. Maybe we're not doing our part to imitations. Take a look at this. I, I got a couple of takeaways for you for, from this particular section that I, want, that I want you to know. Number one, love is sin-free. Here's what I mean, and I just talked about it. Love is not concerned with itself. There is no love in sin. Love is sin-free. The very definition of love, now you find a lot of definitions of love in the Bible, but the type of love I'm talking about is the type of love that we started with in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. Agape love, self-sacrificing love, love that is concerned with other people. It's sin-free. It doesn't have sin. It's the same type of love that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 3, or, or 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The same type of love, and it's sin-free. It doesn't involve sin. It doesn't involve things that are horrible or evil. It's the type of love that God displays upon his children, upon the people of the world when he sacrificed his son on a tree. That type of love. The type of love that is sin-free. The type of love that put a perfect human being a perfect God upon a cross to shed his blood for you, for your sins, because you did evil, because God knew that human beings were going to be susceptible to this. And so therefore, as Christians, if, if, we can, if we can reflect this to other people, if we can reflect this selfless love to other people, can you imagine what the church would be like? Can you imagine if, if we just turned this around and we said, well, we're not going to go with the, the, the regular means of society in the world. We're not going to do what the world says where, where they're practicing selfish love because selfish love really isn't love at all. 
but we're going we're gonna to break the status quo. We're going to stop judging people who have problems. And we're going to try to help people. We're going to try to love people who have difficulties. We're going to try to love people who, who are addicted to drugs or alcohol instead of, instead of putting them aside and saying, well, they're not really worth my time. They're just going to go back again. But what about if we, if, if we put that on there? And of course, you know, we know they've got, they got to do something for themselves, too. But if we, if, we, if we make that the forefront of our lives, if we make this type of love, this agape love, this, this self-sacrificing love at the forefront of our lives, it becomes a ritual. It becomes a habit. It becomes like the type of thing we see with the Good Samaritan, where he didn't think about his own needs, he even spent his own money. That type of love is sin-free. Number two, selfless love is defined by Jesus. And we just talked about this. Selfless love is defined by Jesus on the cross. Selfless love is defined by the one who gave his life for our sins. Let me close you with an illustration. When I was younger, three, four, five, and and maybe you had uh, kids uh, who were young who who wanted to be like their dad, and and I know I did this, um, and my mom tells stories of it, but I was obsessed with my dad's shoes. I go into my dad's, my dad's room and go on, his, on his, um, his shoe shelf, and I pull down his shoes, and I put his, his shoes on, on the ground, and I stick my feet in them to try to fill his shoes, to try to be like my dad in some way, shape, or form. You see, it's the same thing with Christianity. We're trying to fill a small part of God's shoes. God's got some big shoes. We're just trying to fit small. We're trying to imitate him in some way. Even though our feet aren't big enough to fit in the actual shoe, we should still try them on. We should still try to imitate God. We should still try to be like Jesus. Because imitation is about reflection, not recreation. We're not trying to create an original image. We're not trying to do something that's never been done before. We're just trying to be like the one who died for our sins. We're just trying to be like that sinless man who put himself on the cross. We're just trying to love like him. In in some way, shape, or form, that's all we're trying to do, which is be like Jesus. You don't have to be Jesus to be like Jesus. You just have to have a reflection. And it might be a little imperfect, and it might be a little dull, and it might be not living up to the standards of what what we might think, but just a little bit. Imitation is not about reflection, it's about recreation. So that's what I'm going to leave you with tonight. The lesson is yours. If you're here tonight and you have a need, as always, we offer uh, an, a song of encouragement. It's an invitation for you to come forward and sit on this front pew. If you're not a Christian and you're here tonight, there's an opportunity for you to baptize. We'll baptize you right now uh, if you come as we stand and sing.